just while um, George is taking his coat off, I, I just want to I want to just share one thing. It's it's just a practical prayer point, and maybe some of you can chat with me afterwards. But in terms of what George was saying um, before, you called it nickels and noses. I just want to share, sometimes we have this challenge with Truth Walk as well, because I, I was having a chat, I think it was with some of my friends from Leavenworth Wirt who were just saying, oh, it would be great if there were these other pastors who came from this area, and Natasha was sharing something like that. And there's constantly this trade-off between saying you want more people to be benefited by being better trained and you perceive the need in the wider area. And we, we had a conversation internally as well that said, well, it's so hard for people to take five days. You know, if we made it two days or three days, we'd get more people, but then we wouldn't do Second Corinthians. And I know I've really benefited from Second Corinthians and hopefully many of you have as well. But we couldn't have done Second Corinthians without blocking off the time and to block off the time fewer people come and there's financial implications and all of that. So sometimes it's, it's difficult to discern the wise course and what the right thing to do in given situations are. So it, it's a challenge. I mean, there are merits which you all know about and are enjoying by being a part of a church like this with the facilities and all of that. But like George said, there are also hugely faithful people who never have a public persona or people who serve really faithfully in small churches for many years with huge obstacles. And I think that challenge of, of really saying wherever the Lord has called us and whatever he's called us to do, may we just be faithful to his call upon our lives. And as George was saying, seek to do everything before him in Christ and with an awareness that ultimately the calling comes from him and that the commendation is to come from him. So if you could just pray for us in a, for, for practical wisdom for all these things, just where is that line between faith and presumption and wanting to expand and just wanting to be faithful and say, if the Lord has a small thing, to do it faithfully as unto him. And then the second thing, I, I just want to ask George, I was having a, a chat with, with Nick, who's been a huge encouragement to me, one of the founders of Truth Walk as well. We were just talking how often we feel inadequate ourselves, and so many people feel inadequate as they approach the task of evangelism or ministry or that. Maybe you can just start with just praying for us to have a renewed confidence in the adequacy of God's word and the work of the spirit and just trusting that the Lord is ultimately the one who does his work in his time and I'm sure a lot of people would like to be included in that prayer yeah no that, I think that that would be great I was sharing with uh, one of the brothers during the break that I, I think that's just a if you're sincere and you're uh, really trying to follow Christ in the world in ministry um, that's that's going to be a normal reality where you do feel limited and inadequate and, and don't feel like you're doing everything you could be doing and, and all of that. I was, I was being very sincere in saying to him that in going into a new ministry that we're going into, 
We're coming from a place we've been for 28 years where people know us. They know the patterns of our lives, our ministry. They, you know, they, they really valued what we had to offer and that kind of thing. We're going into a situation where nobody really knows us. I mean, they think they know us. And we do have some friends there that, that are being established and all of that. But it, honest, this is honest, uh, as honest as I can be with you. It feels profoundly vulnerable to me to be going into a place where I, you know, I'm not really known. And uh, it's kind of a high-level, intellectual, octane kind of context. And, and honestly, I, I grapple and struggle with the question of, am I going to be able to do what I need to do? Is it going to be okay? You know, are, are they going to find out I really don't know everything they think I know and all of that? I mean, that's just a normal thing that I think all of us on one level or another probably struggle with at times. So uh, what I want to pray is, is that two, two things, that we would be more and more people of the Word of God, and that's why Truth Walk and ministries like it are so important, because I can tell you this without any reservation, whether it's American culture, Canadian culture, South African culture, the future of the church in South Africa will, to, to an extent, be dependent on faithfulness to the Word of God by the people of God over time. And if, if the church continues to go deeper in the Word, continue to, to be educated, promoting a type of discipleship that is really Word-oriented, where we're growing in our understanding of Scripture and theology and learning how to live that out faithfully, that will determine the future of, of the church in South Africa. I mean, I, I'm, my deep concern, again, as I said yesterday, for the American culture situation is I see a generation of young people coming up who do not know the stories of Scripture. They don't know the Word of God, really, and uh, they are being in the process of being blown away by the currents of the culture. And uh, there, there are a lot of good examples of counterculture where that's, you know, being countered and but it's where you see people being very serious about the Word of God and about theology and giving space in their lives to, to being people of the Word. And then the, the second element will be us learning how to live that out under the Lordship of Christ and the direction of the Spirit. You know, as the Holy Spirit continues to work in us to give us the sense of competence and confidence that we have that's by God and not by just us, you know, having the most skilled person up front or whatever. So I do want to pray for us uh, and pray for you, uh, and, and let, me, let me do that, and it'll be a very fitting intro into this uh, next passage, which I'll tell you a little bit more about in a minute. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can step right into your presence because of what our Lord Christ has done. And Father, I thank you that in a very real sense that we are not adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Lord, we know that in and of ourselves, in our own abilities, um, even with all of our mixed motives, we do not have the ability to transform people's hearts. We do not have the ability to uh, make the right decisions to build the church and build the kingdom of God in a way that will be lasting and eternal. Uh, Lord, as I think about us stepping into uh, Regent College in, this, in the fall, I don't have the ability to teach and to do the things that need to be done that will issue in a transformation of my students' lives. don't have the ability to do that. And Father, we at the same time know that you do have the ability to do that. 
that you, by the power of your word, which was, does not return to you void, by the power of you, O Holy Spirit, you transform human hearts. You build your church by putting together the gifts of your people in a way, and encouragement in a way that the church is built up by the truth. And we pray, O oh God, that we would be found as people who would be faithful, who would carry out ministry as you send us into ministry, who carry out ministry before you with integrity and would carry out ministry under the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ as we relate to each other in the body, and that you would build up the church here in South Africa as you would. I do pray for Truth Walk specifically, Lord, that you would give these guys wisdom uh, in how to marshal the resources that it takes to carry out ongoing theological education and biblical education in support of the churches of South Africa and these pastors who are here and the various ministers who are here. God, I pray that you give them wisdom. I pray that you would put them in touch with the enormous resources that are out there in the world. I pray that your people would see the value of biblical and theological education to the point that they would invest in it so that the church might be strengthened to your glory. And we thank you that we've had this time together so far, and we pray that, Lord, even as we continue today and our bodies are tired and our minds get tired after a while with all these uh, uh, intricate details of the text, I pray that you would just wash our feet with the water of your word and that you, Holy Spirit, would, would minister to our hearts and our spirits and give us strong encouragement and renew us as we are under your word. And we all bow before you in that, uh, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are moving into a, um, a passage here that, again, is not an easy passage in terms of the logic and the argument, but I'm going to try to unpack this in such a way that it makes, uh, makes sense of what Paul is doing in this wonderfully, wonderfully rich um, passage. So if you would look at chapter 3, verses 7 through 18, we're going to uh, start by looking at the, um, the first part of that. I think we'll go ahead and read the text as a whole, and you can follow along. I'll have the translation up here on the, the screen, um, and we'll, um, we'll, we'll go ahead and read the whole thing, and I'm going to kind of give you an introduction on how this lines out, um, and, and we'll kind of walk our way through the logic and see if we can make sense of what Paul is doing here. In some ways, the passage falls pretty nicely into uh, verses 7 through 11 and then 12 through 18 at the end. But again, the punch at the end of this passage is just so powerful. I mean, it's such a phenomenal passage when it talks about the nature of new covenant ministry. So let's take a look at this together. Uh, read with me. Now, if the ministry of death engraved in letters on stones was attended by glory, with the result that the sons of Israel were not able to continue looking at the face of Moses because the glory of his face was being made inoperative. I'm going to explain to you why I translate it that way. How could the ministry of the Spirit, capital S, not be attended by glory to a greater degree? For if in the ministry characterized by condemnation there was glory, 
to a much greater degree, the ministry characterized by righteousness overflows with glory. For really, in this situation, what was having been glorified, that's talking about Moses' face, now has no glory at all because of the glory that outshines it. For if that which was being made inoperative was through glory, to a much greater extent, the ministry that remains is attended by glory. Therefore, since we have this kind of hope, we conduct our ministry with a great deal of confidence in contradistinction to Moses. He kept putting a veil over his face with the result that the children of Israel were not able to keep looking unto the completion of what was being made inoperative. Rather, their minds were hardened, for until this very day when the old covenant is read, the same veil remains unmoved because it can only be made inoperative in Christ. It's the same word being used there. Indeed, right up to the present time, when Moses is read, a veil drapes their hearts. But when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord, in that Old Testament passage, is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. All of us with unveiled faces contemplating the Lord's glory as in a mirror are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord who is the Spirit. All right, this, uh, this passage is, um, is really uh, an amazing, amazing passage. And what I want to do is try to set up for you what is going on here. Um, but what he's doing to begin with is he's talking about uh, a contrast of different kinds of ministries, different kinds of ministries. Um, it's a ministry in one sense of image. Now, he's not equating the ministry of Moses with the false teachers, but I think he's picking up on some things that the false teachers were enamored with, kind of the glorious, you know, like a person who's trying to be glorious in terms of their culture, having glory and fame and this kind of thing. He's kind of contrasting that uh, in the backdrop of what he's doing here with real New Testament glory, real New Covenant glory, which comes from knowing the presence of God and God bringing transformation to the life. Two different kinds of approaches to ministry. But he's using the imagery of Old Testament and the relationship of Moses with people under the Old Covenant, and he's building a contrast between glory in that situation, which he says was real glory and really did relate to God, but it's a contrast between that and the real nature of New Covenant type of glory, all right? So he's, he's contrasting ministries here, types of ministry. Some people, when they're interpreting this passage, will say, well, he's really talking about the Old Covenant now being defunct and the New Covenant being the real thing. But I think really in the foreground here, he's talking about ministries. And so we're going to uh, talk about a contrast of ministries here. So he, he, if you look at the first part of the passage, he builds in this contrast that the Old Covenant ministry was a ministry of the letter, that is the law. You think about those letters written on stones and that kind of thing. It was a ministry of death because when you look at what the outcome was in that Old Testament context, the outcome was a lot of people died. 
uh, them coming into uh, connection with the Word of God and with what God was doing in the world often in, issued into just a whole lot of people dying. And so it was a ministry that seemed to have death associated with it. And it was also a ministry of condemnation. It was a ministry of God primarily saying, you guys are not living up to the standards and, uh, and it's all about violations and, and that kind of thing. Now, Paul would be the first person to say God really revealed himself in the Old Testament era, that God was doing things among his people, that there's so much that is glorious there. But he's picking out this moment of the wilderness wanderings specifically to really uh, kind of take that as a snapshot that when you are law-centered and when you are limited in the way that the old covenant ministry was limited, things don't turn out very well. Um, in Judaism of Paul's day in the first century, the wilderness wandering generation was paradigmatic of failure. They were often held up, as Paul does, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 10, as an example of how not to be. You remember that passage in 1 Corinthians 10 where he says, do not be like those guys in the wilderness. Hebrews does the same thing in Hebrews chapter 3. Don't be like them. Do, you know, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like those in the wilderness, playing off of Psalm 95. So he's doing something similar here where he's taking this wilderness generation and what was going on there and showing why even a ministry that involved glory where Moses knew the presence of God so that he went and met with God and his face shone with the presence of God, with the glory of God, how could it be that that didn't result in what, was in what God ultimately intended to happen? And so he's contrasting that ministry with new covenant ministry, which is ministry of the Spirit. It's something that's driven by the Spirit of God. It is a ministry of the Spirit in 3.8 as well, and then it's a, a ministry of righteousness. What it issues in are people who really are transformed, and they live righteously in the world. They live righteously, all right? So, uh, so those are the contrasts that are built in. But now the main image that he's going to kind of play off of here is the image of glory or doxa, all right? So uh, he's going to really play up this image of glory. So listen to this again um, as I, I read it. Listen to this image of glory in the passage. Now, if the ministry of death engraved in letters on stones was attended by glory, is the way that I said it. The, the language here in the Greek is kind of hard to sort out, but um, it was literally, it came in glory. So it was attended by glory. And what he's, all he's saying there is, that Moses' ministry had glory involved in it. You look at Exodus 34, what you find is his face was glorified when he came down off the mountain. In other words, he was manifesting that he had been in the presence of God. If it was that case that that ministry was attended by glory with the result that the children of Israel were not able to continue looking at the face of Moses because the glory of his face, and I've translated this word, katargeo, as it was made inoperative. Uh, let me tell you what, what I think is going on there. This word, and I'm going to get to it here in uh, 
just a second, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about the glory. But what he's saying is that Moses came down off the mountain. Um, the people could not keep, they didn't keep looking at the glory because the glory is made inoperative. All he's doing is he's reading the surface level of the text, and he's saying, what did Moses do? How did the people respond to the glory? Somebody tell me, in the, back in that passage, how did the people respond when Moses showed up and his face is manifesting the presence of God in glory? Did they say, man, that is awesome. How can we be involved in that? Is that how they responded? What did they, how did they respond? They went, ah, cover that up. And so what did Moses do? He put a veil over his face. He snuffed out the glory. Uh, this word, katargeo, some of your uh, translations, and I'll, bring, I'll unpack this a little bit more in a minute, but some of your translations say that it was fading. The glory of Moses' face was fading. How else do, does your translation read? What does the ESV read there? It was what? One more time? Brought to an end. Okay. Yeah, but that's not a, that's not a bad translation. Um, so the idea of fading, though, that some of the translations have, that's, there's nowhere in the ancient world where katagreo means to fade. As what? Transitory. Okay, which kind of picks up on the idea of fading. It doesn't mean that. It means something that has been, the light switch has been turned off, is really what it means. And I think he's just reading the surface level of the text, and he's saying what Moses did is he took a veil and he went, whoop, and it shut down the glory. Does that make sense? So the people didn't keep looking at the glory because Moses put a veil over his face, and he says if, if the old covenant ministry had that kind of situation where glory was there, it was manifested, it was attended by glory, but it was shut off and made inoperative, how could the ministry of the Spirit not be attended by glory to a greater degree? Now, what he's doing is he's doing what in rabbinics and the rabbis, it was called an argument from lesser to greater. And the argument from lesser to greater said if something was true in a lesser situation, how much more is it true with greater implications in a greater situation? So what he's saying in the lesser situation here is Moses manifesting the presence of God in the Old Covenant, he's saying if glory showed up, if the presence of God was manifested there, if that happened and it was true, how much greater is glory manifested in the New Covenant where the Spirit is in every person? The presence of God is manifest in every believer of the New Covenant. You've got a whole lot more glory going on there, the manifestation of the presence of God. All right, let's keep reading and track with me here and I think all this is going to come together in just a moment. So he says, uh, how could the ministry of spirit not be attended by glory to a greater degree? For if the ministry characterized by condemnation, it's Moses' ministry, if there was glory there, to a much greater degree, the ministry characterized by righteousness overflows with glory. <clears throat> so <clears throat> what he's saying is, if under the new covenant, every believer has the Spirit of God in them, the transformation of the human heart is taking place, you and I are manifesting the presence of God. You don't just have one guy, Moses, manifesting the presence of God, where he's the minister and he st stands up and his face shines, and everybody goes, oh, isn't that awesome, and covered up. 
But you have all the believers being transformed by the Spirit of God so that now you've got the glory of God manifested through the whole church. It's not relegated to one person. It's now the presence and the glory of God being manifested with all the people of God. And so his argument from lesser to greater is that there's just so much more glory here because everybody is being transformed by the glory of God. Look at verse 10. For really in this situation, what was having been glorified, the the glory of Moses' face, now has no glory at all because of the glory that outshines it. If we were in here and you had uh, the room completely shut down, it was absolutely dark, I could take out my iPhone and I could turn on the light on my iPhone if I can get in here. Wait a minute, it's trying to make an emergency call. We don't want to do that. So I could turn on the light here. And if, if the room was completely dark, this would look bright, wouldn't it? Oh, thank you. Ah, very good. Okay, this looks kind of bright. My illustration is breaking down, all right? But I would have glory, you know, glory on my face. Okay, you can turn it back down again. Right? At least it kind of sticks out uh, a little bit. But now turn the lights on. And especially if you had floodlights that were shining on me, you wouldn't see this light at all, would you? And what he's saying here is that when you see the glory on Moses' face, everything in the narrative there is drawn to that as being a big deal. And it is because it's manifesting the the presence of God, right? But he's saying if you have the floodlight of the New Covenant church in ministry where all of the people of God are shining with the presence of God and manifesting the presence of God, think about it. The millions of believers, millions and millions and millions of believers who are now shining and manifesting the glory of God throughout the world, it dwarfs the glory on Moses' face. It's a different kind of ministry reality. And part of what the backdrop is here, I think, is that in Greco-Roman world that these false teachers were really kind of playing up their value as these great ministers. It was all about being the leader of the shining face. I'm awesome. Look at me as I manifest the presence of God. And all of you need my ministry because I am so awesome. I am your ticket to God's future for your life. And what Paul says, that's not what New Covenant ministry is about. It's not about the leader of the shining face. It's about the transformation of the human heart through the New Covenant so that all the people of God are manifesting the presence of God. That's what it's about. So look at how he ends this little section here in verse 11. He says, for if that which was being made inoperative was through glory, and what he means by that is Moses' face shone because Moses went into the presence of God, the glory of God shone on him and imprinted on his face. So he's saying that Moses' face that was made inoperative, that was, you know, cut off in terms of the glory, 
If it was uh, through glory, through him being in the presence of God, then how much more to a much greater extent the ministry that remains, the new covenant ministry, is attended by glory. All right, so let me, let me say a, a little bit more about this idea of glory. Uh, and I'm going to do this real quickly, so hang, hang with me here. But in, in terms of when we look at the concept of the glory, biblically, of glory, glory is used in a lot of different ways. And let me just kind of give you a quick summary of these. Don't try to write all of these down. If some of you are keen to get these notes, um, we can, I can kind of give them to you. But in biblical literature, glory is used as a designation for God himself. God can be called the glory. Glory sometimes refers to an internal characteristic, an attribute of God, Glory is God's visible and active presence. A lot of what we see in, in the Old Testament is where, like, the glory of God comes down on the tabernacle. You remember that? So the, the glory there is manifesting the presence of God in that case. Glory can be a display of God's perfections. Glory can be the ultimate goal or display of God's attributes. Glory sometimes is a designation for heaven because that's the place of, of the presence of God and giving glory to God may be something like we would think of, of just showing God honor and praise as famous, in a sense, glorifying Him uh, because of who He is. Here, in this passage, I think especially what He has in mind is more related to the idea of the manifestation of the presence of God. And I'm not, just because of time, I'm not going to to go into a couple of these things. So let me kind of move on past here, if I can. I'm sorry to, sorry to rush this, but I've got a little bit more in here than we have time for at the moment. Um, so let me kind of give you a summary of what I'm, I think is going on here and um, move back to this idea of, of the, uh, the term that I was talking about a minute ago. So what, he, what he's doing is he's saying that you have a situation in which um, Moses has one kind of ministry that really is focused on him, and that's not Moses' fault. It's really the people we're going to see in a minute. They did not respond well to his ministry, and so it ended up being the glory was limited to one person. And that glory itself kept getting shut off because the people were not responding well to the presence of God. And that's contrasted with the kind of ministry where transformation takes place of the life and that transformation issues in manifesting the presence of God. So again, I apologize. I shouldn't even have left some of these slides in here. But let me, um, let me move on past some of this. Give me just a second. And let me move to, to this uh, next part because it's pretty cool. So we've already said this word katergeo has to do with snuffing out, closing off. In verse 13 it says, In contradistinction to Moses, he kept putting a veil over his face with the result that the children of Israel were not able to keep looking I've translated this little phrase, it's a difficult phrase, as unto the completion of what was being made inoperative. Let me explain what I think that means. 
What happened was the Mo- Moses' face was glorified. It was supposed to have a particular outcome. And if you, and interestingly, if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, back in um, Exodus 33, it actually translates it as Moses says, how can we be glorified, I and your people? Is it not by you going with us? You remember that passage where they had the golden calf incident and God said, because of this golden calf thing, I'm going to send you up to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. You remember that? And Moses comes back and he cries out to God and says, God, if you don't go with us, I'm staying here because I want to be where you are. Do not lead us. That's what he says. Do not lead us up from this place. For how can we be distinct from all the people of the earth? Is it not by your going with us? Your presence, God, makes us who we are. And the way that the Greek translation of that says, Moses says, God, how can we be glorified, I and your people, is it not by you going with us? And I think what's going on there is as you move into Exodus 34, what was supposed to happen when Moses came down off the, off the mountain manifesting the presence of God, God was going to draw the people generally into his presence so that they would manifest God's presence as a people. That's ultimately where things were going. And you can say, well, the ultimate desire, God's anticipating the new covenant and what would happen in there, and I'm, I'm cool with that. But ultimately, that was the intention, is that God was drawing his people into his presence so that they might shine with his glory to the nations. That's clear when you look at the Pentateuch, that God's ultimate intention is that they would glorify him as a people. And the problem with this this moment with Moses is instead of being drawn into the presence of God, the people said, hey, we don't want any of that. That freaks us out. And so the intention, they didn't keep looking at the glory unto the completion of what was going on with Moses' face. But then look at the next part. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. So he kept uh, looking so that they did not look unto the completion was being made. Rather, this is back in that Exodus 34, their minds were hardened. They hardened their minds against what God was doing with Moses. For unto this very day, when the old covenant is read, that same veil remains unmoved because it can only be made inoperative in Christ. So now Paul is drawing an analogy to his day. The old covenant wilderness people did not respond to the manifestation of the glory of God in Moses' face by saying, how can we be involved in the presence of God? How can we manifest the glory of God? Their heart was hardened. And he says the same thing happens today as the gospel is preached in the world, Paul says, you still have people hardening the heart against the manifestation of the glory of God in the gospel. They say, we don't want that. How can that be changed? Well, the only way it can be changed is for that veil lying over their heart to be taken away, to be snuffed, to be done away with. It's the same word he's been using in the passage of being made inoperative. 
It can only be made inoperative in Christ. So whereas in Exodus 34, the veil was making the glory on Moses' face inoperative, now Paul says the veil that lies over people's hearts, that keeps them from the gospel, Christ makes that veil inoperative. He rips it away and opens them up to the presence and the glory of God. Do you see how cool that is? the use of that language, and how it makes sense of the language of, of inoperability. In other words, the veil that is effective, uh, let's just say I'm, I'm dealing with somebody in Vancouver, and they are a person who is secular. They do not know about the things of God. They have a veil that is standing between them and an understanding of the gospel. And what Paul is saying here is, Christ has the ability to come and take that veil which is effectively separating them from God and their understanding and the presence of the Spirit of God. And Christ has the ability to come to that person's heart and to rip away and make that veil inoperative so that they hear the gospel and they respond and the Spirit of God comes in their life and transforms them and makes them a new person. And look at how the passage continues. Indeed, right up to the present time when Moses read, the veil drapes their hearts, but when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And then verses 17 and 18 bring it all together. Now the Lord, he's talking about in that Old Testament passage, I think, the Lord that Moses was meeting with is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. All of us with unveiled faces contemplating the Lord's glory as in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord who is the Spirit. So here's what he's saying. He's saying that under the new covenant, that the veil over the human heart is ripped away. We are then put into a transformative relationship with God where we have an ongoing relationship with God. We walk with Him. We see Him face to face. We know the glory of God because we are looking Him in the face. We have that kind of relationship. And to be people who are in the presence of God, that then changes us in an ongoing way. We manifest the glory of God. And he says this is the difference between Moses' ministry and New Covenant ministry. Whereas Moses' ministry was about the guy of the shining face speaking to everybody else, New Covenant ministry, the outcome of that is people move into a relationship with God where they walk with God and they are being transformed by the presence of God in their lives. Now what does it mean when he says that we manifest the glory of God? Normally, we don't shine physically. Now, there are times that you see somebody that they're manifesting the presence of God in their life by the way they shine. I, I was telling you about my friend Carlos in Israel. He's Arab. And have I told you anything about Carlos? I don't think I have yet. Carlos was basically a, a thug. Um, he tried to kill his brother-in-law in, a, in an honor killing and put him in the hospital. Uh, he stabbed him 13 times put him in the hospital. But when Carlos was in jail waiting for his sentencing over a period of months, he came to know Christ. Uh, someone led him to Jesus. In fact, when his brother Thomas, who had been running a nightclub in Germany, came back 
to visit him in the hospital, he went to their mom and said, Mom, it's worse than we thought. Drugs have fried his brain. All he wants to talk about is Jesus. And they came to the day of his sentencing, and they brought Carlos in before a secular Jewish judge. And all of Carlos's family had come to the sentencing to hear the sentence. And the judge said, Carlos, do you have anything that you want to say? And he said, as a matter of fact, I do. And for about 30 minutes, he preached the gospel. He just shared about how Christ had transformed his life, and he preached the gospel. He got to the end of the time, and this secular Jewish judge said, Carlos, your face is shining. And he said, you need to thank this Jesus, because I ought to put you away for a long time, but I'm going to let you out on probation so you can pursue whatever has happened to you, because obviously something has happened to you. And he led his whole family to Christ. Thomas was the last one to come to Christ. And I got to know these guys because they went to the Messianic Jewish Bible school that they knew of in Israel that they heard about and came to them and said, hey, we're Arabs, but can we come study here? And now 30% of the Bible school is Arab. So you have Jews and Arabs meeting together in classes to learn about the gospel. But But Carlos is one of the most effective evangelists in Israel today, but his face was shining. It's not, what what Paul's talking about here is not that we walk around with flashlights coming from our face necessarily. I think Carlos was manifesting the presence of God by the character of God and, and how God had changed and transformed his life. We talk about the communicable attributes of God, how God shares with us as his His people love and joy and creativity, all these different kinds of things that manifest God's character. I think that's what he's talking about. You and me being changed as the people of God, being transformed as the people of God, and that is manifest. And and, and so get what Paul is saying here. What's the ultimate mark of the real, effective, authentic ministry? It's not the speaker of the shining face. It's the transformation of the people of God. So they are living out the character of God in the world. And that glory is multiplying and expanding in the world. The presence of God is becoming known in all the dark corners of South Africa. Because the people of God are there and therefore God's presence is shining in all of those places. And as in my culture and your culture, there's so many dark places, right? So much work that needs to be done. But God is manifesting his presence and shining his glory out through his people. So so this passage really is, um, is, is powerful. It is beautiful. It is really talking about the manifestation of the presence of God through the people of God. And it is, um, it is really one of the key marks of what it means to be God's people in the world. Let me read just a, a couple of, of thoughts in closing this part, and then I'll give you a chance to uh, ask questions if you would like to do that. But in speaking about the glory of God, Michael Horton writes, uh, through the Spirit, all that is done by Christ for us, outside of us and in the past, is received and made fruitful within us in the present. In this way, the power that is constitutive of 
the consummation, the age to come, is already at work now in the world through the Spirit's agency. Not only is Christ's past work applied to us, but His present status of glory, in glory, penetrates our own existence in a way. The Spirit's work is what connects us here and now to the work of Christ in the past, the present, and the future. The Spirit shapes creaturely reality, our reality as human beings, according to the image of Jesus as we are conformed to the image of Jesus. All right? So we are being transformed into the glory of God. God is changing us as his people. Okay, it's a very complex passage, but I hope that that makes some sense, um, you know, what we, what we were talking about there. Why don't we uh, see if you have any questions, or we could talk about kind of implications of this, but I saw this hand here first, so let's start with you, and then we'll go to Sean. Uh, thanks. Really appreciate you handing this passage, and it's uh, definitely a very complex passage. And I think I agree with everything that you said. I've got a question on emphasis, maybe in the passage. Yep. And so you definitely went with the emphasis on the person who manifests the glory of God. And I'm just wondering if it's not rather an emphasis on covenantal theology rather than simply the manifestation of the glory, and what it feels like the context before and after when he talks about the false teachers, it's not just anyone trying to access the glory of God, but specifically Moses was the covenant bearer um, with the Mosaic covenant, and that covenant was being brought to an end. And he's speaking against the false teachers who still want to access the glory of God through the Mosaic covenant. And yes, we, we also manifest the glory but the way that we manifest the glory, the way that we behold the glory is now through the new covenant. And it almost seems like the transformed into the same image is a ref reference to the initial covenant with Adam and Eve that we were created in that image. So I'm, I've just got a question on emphasis on the passage. Okay, yeah. And I, I understand that, um, that question. And, and I have responded more in more detail in the commentary to the idea that there's a contrast of covenants. The only question I would ask is, what is the language of the passage actually emphasizing? Like, is there any hint in the passage? Now, I agree that the image, image idea, theologically, can go back to, you know, you know, our image as human beings in Adam and that kind of thing. But where do you see that in this particular passage is the question. So what I've said in terms of the contrast of covenants, you do have that because you, you have the, the language of... Um, of, you know, the covenant here, at least allusions and echoes of new covenant language and that kind of thing. But the emphasis in the passage of itself is on the ministry, the ministry, the ministry of Moses over against the ministry of the new covenant. And, and so um, I think we've got, to, we've got to allow the text to speak and not kind of take, you know, our theological system. And, and I'm not saying that's what you're doing, but it's a good question. But you know, if we're not careful, we kind of inculcate our theological system, say, okay, how can I make this fit my system? And it's harder for all of us to, to allow the language of the passage to kind of direct our thinking to what he's emphasizing. So what I would say is you see a repetition of the idea of glory. You see a repetition of the idea of ministry, which is that word ministry is used over and over and over again. And that's distinct from 
just the idea of like broad covenants of the Old Testament era or something like that. So I'm not saying that, that that's not here somewhere in the context that's Old Covenant against New Covenant, but I, I'd say even though that's the backdrop, the emphasis is on how ministry is carried out. And it may be that the false teachers were trying to, and some people would say that the false teachers are appealing to the Mosaic law in some ways. I think, as I already said, that I think they were more legalistic, and so maybe they were trying to press in people to live out certain aspects of the law. So all of that's there, but his emphasis is on what actually makes for effective ministry. It's not the person of the shining face. It's the Spirit of God transforming human lives through the new covenant. And, and that's what I think is the real emphasis of the passage. But, you know, we can keep talking about that. But go back and read again and say, okay, if I, if I think that this is primarily about, you know, kind of the system of covenants, is that what it's primarily about? Go back and say, okay, so where exactly do I see that language here as an emphasis? And I would say, I don't, I don't think that that's the emphasis of the passage. It's there in the backdrop in terms of depending on how you understand covenantal theology. You know, so that's, that's another question. Sean, but thank you for that good question, yeah. I mean, if you could maybe just say something about, uh, as you put it, Christ ripping the veil away. So how is that the work of Christ as a, not opposed to, or in, you know, with the work of the Spirit? So is that veil, is that the veil of unbelief that's taken away? Hmm. And, and then leading out, and this is maybe more a question about systematic theology. So how does that kind of speak of how salvation worked <laughs> under the old covenant? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, if there are any difficult questions, maybe we should take them first and then come back to this. I'm just kidding. Oh, okay. I could say, great question. All right. Next question. Uh, you know, no, it is a good question. Um, you know, when you talk about the workings of the Trinity in the human heart, I mean, we are we are dealing with a mystery. So, Paul, Paul in using this imagery of Christ ripping the veil away, he's, he's obviously is understanding it by the work of the Spirit, right? Um, so he's not collapsing the Trinity into, you know, some type of monism or something like that. I mean, you have the different persons of the Trinity referred to here. But um, in saying, what is Christ doing when he rips away the, away the veil? I mean, if we just take the imagery at face value, he's saying that something, stand, something lies over the human heart that makes the heart hard and, and not responsive to the, to the revelation of God, right? So he's using veil as an imagery of this barrier, this barrier that stands between people. We, we actually had a, had a couple who we were sharing Christ with last year, secular couple, again, amazing story, but um, they came to us, really, because they saw... Jesus manifested in his sister. It's a, long, it's a long story, but they saw the gospel manifested in his sister's life. She lives up in the Seattle area. He was living with his girlfriend in West Tennessee, and, um, and his sister had had me in class 15 years ago and called and said, they're wanting premarital counseling, and they, and they see Christians as, you know, having a good life, and so would you be willing to take them through premarital counseling, a secular couple? And uh, so we, we got with them, with Sean and Jordan, and 
we said, hey, guys, the only way we know to do premarital counseling is to talk about Christ. So you understand, if, if you want to go through this, we're going to talk to you about the gospel, and we're going to talk about Christian marriage and that kind of stuff, and we'll just see where this goes, if that's okay with you. And they said, cool, that sounds great. So we went through a whole evangelistic Bible study with them through the gospel of Mark, and eventually they came to, to commit themselves to the Lord and, and actually committed themselves to the Lord on their marriage day. And I married them in a park in Nashville, Tennessee, and they, they bowed because they knew. I mean, he came to me at one point in the whole process. He said, you know, because they were living together, he says, I'm kind of wondering, is there any loophole here where we could kind of come to Christ and still live together? And I said, ah, there's not a loophole. You, can't, you don't have the loophole. But anyway, they, they eventually committed themselves to Christ and got married and all that kind of stuff. But while we were in the process, Pat and I were so aware of the fact that, was, that we could not change their hearts. So the idea of the veil lying over the heart is that there's a barrier there that's a spiritual barrier that only Christ can deal with. And whether you call it the barrier of unbelief or, the, or whatever it is, there's, there's a, a separation between the person and God that as Christ comes in and deals with the human heart and transforms the human heart. That's what changes people into the people of God, is him ripping that away so that they respond, and uh, you have the transformation of the heart, which transformation of the heart is a new covenant image, right? Just hearts of stone are being exchanged for hearts of flesh, that, that kind of idea. So that, that's the first part of the question. Your systematic theology part of the question was how all this works in terms of under the, under the old... Covenant. Well, we're in the New Testament, so we're not going to answer that right now. Uh, really, yeah, I, my short answer is I think that they responded to God by faith. This is going to be way inadequate for me to say it this way, but in some way, I think that what Christ did, if you look at Hebrews chapter 9, uh, toward the end of the chapter there, he says that if Christ had not died once for all time, he would have had to have died repeatedly from the foundation of the world. And what that tells me that Hebrews thinks theologically is that in some mysterious way, because Christ is not bound by time, that his sacrifice on the cross was supratemporal and was able to reach back to the beginning of the world and all the way to the end of the age. You do know that if you're part of the new covenant, all of your sins have already been decisively dealt with that you will ever commit. Now, that's, that's, a, that's another glorious story, but I think it also works back the other way so that people of faith in the old covenant, like Abraham and Moses and others, I think in some mysterious way, they were already drawing benefit from what Christ would ultimately do in his work. And that, that's way too simplistic of an answer but, they, but I think the short answer is they responded to God by faith. And um, that's way too simplistic of an answer, but I'm, I'm going to kind of hold it there. And then somebody back here had a question? Yes, and then we'll come. Yep. Or Natasha, yeah. Okay, is, is your mic on? Well, that surprises me because you're so theologically oriented. You are. I, it's going to sound like a theology question, okay. but I actually just want to ask uh, the emphasis on the scripture, yeah? Okay. Um, so, is this talking about an individual, um, the taking away of the veil over a person's heart? Because I know in Armenian theology, you would, you, 
um, you would say that because Jesus has died, a veil was removed and the possibility of salvation is now there for all humanity. Not, I'm not talking about oh, universalism. See. I'm just talking about there's a possibility that people can actually give their lives to Jesus. Yeah. So I want to know the emphasis of this scripture. Is it for an individual or does it talk about humanity? Uh, not, you don't have to go to the theology sure, part no. of it. Just the no, that's a good question. I think, I think what Paul is talking about is as he walks, goes around preaching in the Mediterranean world, he's saying that he, he's getting a, a consistent response at times from people. Like, you just go to Acts and look at, he goes and he preaches in the synagogue, and there are some people who believe and some people who reject his message. He's dealing with it at that level. He's saying as, as people hear the gospel, there are people who do not respond to it well because they have a veil that is separating them. Spiritually, something's going on there that is keeping them from hearing and understanding and being transformed by the gospel of Christ. So it's, it's not categorical to say, well, he's talking about, you know, in some ways it is an individual response, right? Because we have to respond in some ways individually. Um, but he's certainly not making kind of a blanket theological statement or something like that. I think he's just talking about how people respond to the gospel or don't. Does that make some yeah. sense? Or, or why, I could say, why they respond or don't respond. Well, it's by the work of Christ in, in the, the heart of, of each person. I think in some ways, yes, because he, he's saying that... Um, you know, I mean, the language here, he's describing people's response to the gospel. And, of course, people have to hear the gospel, you know, and it's more individual response. So what I would say is that you certainly at least have that present that we do have to respond to the gospel. One thing that I say is that the gospel is to be responded to, Right? The gospel is something to be responded to. And even if, I, you know, we've got a whole mix of people denominationally in terms of traditions and that kind of thing. And for, for friends of mine who are, are more um, in the, the vein of their children are coming up and kind of assume to be in the faith until they, you know, manifest one way or the other when they get older, the thing that I, I do challenge them on, because I'm, I'm more from a credo-baptist kind of, kind of orientation, uh, but I, I would challenge my Anglican friends, for instance, and say, just tell me, how are you challenging your children and growing your children to the point of responding to the gospel? Because the gospel is something to be responded to. And at the same time, there, there, there are challenges on both sides. Whichever tradition you're coming from, you know, there, there are challenges to that. But, but the fact is, the gospel is something to be responded to, right? And I think that we, we do, in a sense, have to do that individually. That can't be done for us. You know, even though in the first century world, you had people who would come as a household, and it would be very natural for the whole family to go with what the father was doing, you know. But I would say that if it's really gospel transformation, they would have to be responding themselves to the gospel. Okay, one more back here, and I think it's time for lunch. Okay, well, I know Vernon... Oh, I'm uh, sorry, did we have some He had a question too? as well, so we've... Okay, it, yep. Well, while I'm, let me walk to him, and then I'll come to Mike. Would you say um, Acts 16 with Lydia, with the Lord opening the heart to... I think that's a great example. Okay. Absolutely. I think that's a great example. In 27 seconds. Oh, my goodness. 
Um, Doug Mood needs to be here to talk about, uh, about righteousness. 2020, he's probably coming back. Good, okay. Uh, because Doug Moo's written commentary on Romans, and um, he, yeah, there's a big debate on the, what we mean by the righteousness of God. Um, is, is it primarily God's character that is manifested in the world, or is it that God is transforming something in us so that we are manifesting the righteousness of God in the world? And my answer to that is yes. Um, yeah, dikaiosune, the Greek term, is, is a complex term in Paul, but I think it's, a, it's complex in that it is talking about it's grounded in the character of God and that God manifested what is right in his character and righteous in the world, and therefore that issues in a ministry of righteousness in that it transforms the human heart in a way that we then manifest the righteousness of God in the world. It kind of relates to what I was saying about the glory, that we experience the presence and the glory of God so that we then manifest the glory of God. I think there's, there's a simple way in which righteousness does that. And I don't mean to, to be simplistic in answering your question. And we can talk about it more at the break if you would like to, to get at what you're really you know, wanting to probe there. But um, I do think that, that part of it is that we are manifesting the character of God uh, we are, and, and there's a complexity to that because, in one sense, righteousness is imputed, or we are we are justified before God forensically, if you want to use that terminology. In other other words, I am counted as right before God because of what Christ has done. But I use the language when we get to chapter five of what I call tra- transformational interchange. That there. That, that yes, Christ has stood in my place, he has died for my sins, but that also means that I am put in a place where I'm not only in right standing before God, I am being made right in my person, being transformed by the presence of God and Christ in my life, so, that it's, so I'm changing and my character is being transformed. I think when we dichotomize that and say, well, it's either forensic or it's you know, something else, then I think that's a false dichotomy from the New Testament standpoint. I think we are, that we do have righteousness that is, you know, we are declared justified, but then we also are, are in the pro, put in the process of transformation. And I would say in this passage, the emphasis is more on the transformation side of that. It's not to the exclusion of something else, but it's, it's that. And I think, for instance, just practically, the reason why that's the emphasis in 2 Corinthians, because there are some members of the church who are... Who are dallying out here with the false teachers, and they need to be challenged that what real Christianity is is about the transformation of the life under the gospel and the lordship of Christ, and it's not just that you wear a label or say, yes, I'm a Christian or something like that. I think, I think his Romans commentary is brilliant. I mean, really, I think that's very good. Um, there are a couple of other books that are very good. Um, uh, there is a little book on justification. My brain cells really are a little bit dissolved here, but uh, by uh, Westerholm. I tell you what, I can look at the, the exact title. Do you remember the, that title? It's on justification. Yeah, it's, it's justification. Stephen Westerholm. It's, book. Um, where are you? No, oh, there you no. are. Okay, yeah. It's, it's Westerholm's little book it, on... It is, yeah, I remember. He wrote, he wrote 
the bigger book is I think it's called Justification Reconsidered. Yeah, that's that right. Book the little is book is called Justification Reconsidered. That's very good. Um, another book that's really good on some of this is by my colleague uh, from Union University, Brad Green, on uh, I think it's Covenant and Commandment or something like that. And he's talking, he's coming from more of a reform standpoint, but he's talking about the importance of works and final judgment, which is interesting. So he's, he's vying for ongoing transformation of life as vital for, you know, God celebrating us at the end of the age and that kind of thing. So that's a, that's a very good book as well. But Mu on Romans, he has a he has a section in there on Dikaiosune and the and that that concept of of righteousness, and I think that's that's a good place to to begin. Just the, right. the voice from heaven is just also saying that uh, there's a book by Marcus Peter Johnson called um, One with Christ, and the subtitles an Evangelical Theology of Salvation. And uh, George hasn't read it, so he's not taking responsibility for this suggestion, but. What's interesting about the book is he centers um, he centers the doctrine of salvation on union with Christ, and he talks about justification coming in union with Christ, sanctification adopted in Christ, etc. And I think he makes a very good argument for how in Calvin and the Reformed tradition and other traditions, I think, that are not Reformed as well, how the person of Christ and union with him unifies these various strands of salvation without mixing categories of forensic versus yeah. Actually, that's, that's very similar to where Brad Green would be coming from in his book, um, Union Christ. And I think that that's very central to Paul's theology, the whole idea of being in Christ, you know, union with Christ is, is right at the heart there. So I think it's time to eat lunch. Yeah. Michael said he's hungry, so he's retracting his question. Okay, and we can, we can chat, and maybe I can answer your question after the break if we want to do that. So, All right, bless you. Thank you so much.